Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. And you are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cent. You can follow us on Twitter or send us an email to afternoon at newstalk.com. As you always do, uh, first thing of a Monday, uh, we look back at some of the stories uh, over the weekend. Today, it's uh, Declan Power, the Security and Defence Analyst. Declan, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Sean. Uh, we, uh, we actually heard a reference to it there, uh, that this chap, Steve Baker, the, uh, who's the Northern Ireland Secretary, apologising. Yeah. And this guy was like, you know, the chair of the European Research Group. There was nobody more Brexity than this guy. Yeah, I know. I know. And uh, it's such a kind of a U-turn of terminology to even kind of use a term like uh, straightforward apology for having kind of not taken note enough of Irish interests and how they could be damaged. You know, well, what was the, the phrase that uh, Seamus Mallon once used about the peace process? Sunningdale for slow learners. Mm. And these guys in the current iteration of Tory politicians seem to be the slowest of learners. But on a positive note, <laughs> better late than never. And uh, it, it probably prefaces, it's the start of a mood music being put in play, I would say, by uh, Liz Truss and, and co to try and rebalance things with the relationship with Europe, to try and uh, stop the simmering uh, discontent about the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. And I think there'll be a, it could be a lot of positivity for everybody except the Democratic Unionist Party, who I'm sure are looking aghast at what's coming down the track, because what I think is going to happen here is that the protocol is going to maybe have a few little cosmetic tempers and stay as is. Yeah. Uh, you know, the EU didn't blink. And Liz Truss and Co are realising that they need a few wins. Their core constituency is not Northern Ireland. And I think it's going to be interesting in debates and discussions down the line with a more uh, enlightened type of unionist as regards to what the actor Jimmy Nesbitt rather eloquently called, uh, I think it was, did he speak uh, at the um, gathering on unity? Mm, at the weekend, yeah. A, a new form, a new concept of a union of Ireland. I noticed the terminology he used uh, and how that would look to people from his tradition, him being from a, a Northern Unionist tradition. And I think that, that prefaces an interesting discussion that we have to have down here. Because I often say it to people uh, when it comes up, well, what would you do for a United Ireland? And you get all kinds of nonsense. Like, you know, the, uh, people who haven't kind of given it much thought. We think the, the six counties would be just added on, like sticking a flash drive into a, you know, a mainframe computer. Mm. But uh, it's the little things, like, you know, in terms of uh, if people can't contemplate changing the national anthem or changing the flag, well, you know, those things aren't terribly important in of themselves. They're hugely symbolic. And it's if we're talking about what would be a, you know, a shared new identity, we have to be imaginative. Now, you could argue a lot of unionists probably don't care too much about that. What they would care about is, as, as Nesbitt said, space for their identity. Uh, how do we do that? Um, you're going to have to have space for them within Dáil uh, do they become an ethnic minority or, or how do we go about it? And we have to create space for their sense of British identity to some extent if we want to have uh, uh, not so much, uh, when I say peaceful transition, shall we say a tranquil transition because peaceful suggests that there would be a likelihood of, of conflict. I don't think there would be. I think there just could be an almighty screw up of day-to-day business if we don't think about uh, how we might manage that. And also, there, it doesn't have to happen any time soon. 
you know, because border polls and things like that just tell us a snapshot of opinion at a given time. But it doesn't indicate that unification should take place in a year or two. I think that could be a tragic mistake because we're just not uh, prepared. We don't have the spade work done for it. Mm. And we've had partition for 100 years and for a good 50 years before that, almost yeah. de facto partition. Absolutely, so, exactly. Uh, so, you don't yeah. unwind that in uh, with a border poll then. No, and, and the other point that was made too, I forget who it was uh, after the, the statistics mm. came out. So, you know, P, uh, you know, what is it, a majority identify as Irish rather than British. But there's a significant group identify as Northern Irish. Mm. And what does that mean? Uh, are they Northern Irish uh, from a unionist perspective or from a, a nationalist <laughs> perspective? And what does that mean? There is an old joke about a fellow being stopped at a checkpoint yeah, in Northern yeah. Ireland and saying what religion. He says, I'm atheist. Are you a Protestant atheist or a yeah, Catholic yeah. atheist? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, maybe, but maybe they do just want to be Northern Irish. Maybe they do. It's a plague on both your houses and they've, you know, they come up with a a new category, a new way of self-identifying. And that's fair enough. Uh, I mean, Rory McElroy, who comes ostensibly from a, you know, a nationalist type background, identified as Northern Irish. And I think, you know, a, a, cleverly enough, what he was doing was a touch of the Barry McGuigans. He wasn't isolating support from anywhere. Mm. And it meant that, you know, like the, like the rugby team, you know, you could, be, you could be Irish from many perspectives. And that's what we have to, down here, get to grips with. We don't own Irishness. Uh, you know, we, we, there, there's one strand of it that a lot of people would identify the, shall we say, GAA playing Irish speaking. I'm being a bit general and a bit, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, not, not many extreme. ways to be Irish. But yeah. there are many ways. And you can be Irish with a small I and British with a capital B or Irish with a capital I, full stop. Uh, you know, we, we have to make space for the, the different traditions and acknowledge that there's a lot of, like, I mean, personally speaking, you know, the, uh, the efforts to reclaim the identity and the heritage of the Irishmen North and South who fought particularly in the First World War. My granduncle was killed in the Somme. He was from Donegal. Uh, was he less of an Irishman for that? He went to fight on the basis of what John Redmond said. He was a constitutional nationalist mm. that small nations might be free. Uh, and another grandfather who served in the old IRA and then went on to serve in the Free State Army and then on Garda Síochána. You know, the, the, the crossover uh, with the Unionist tradition is there if we look for it. And we have to um, magnify those things that are similar, magnify the similarities. Isn't that what uh, we've been doing in this country over the last 30 odd years in our transition from, you know, priest ridden Catholic backwater and no disrespect to priests and two grand uncles who were priests. But I mean, like, you know, the way we were enthralled to, you know, changing one set of overlords from Dublin Castle from overlords from the Papal Nuncio. Mm. And uh, and now we've come into our own. We've be, we, we're, we're more... Uh, liberal in our interpretation of things. And this is just one more challenge in that area. And I think that's that story today is a step in the right direction when we always used to interpret, I think, uh, certainly Irish people of a certain generation, if we're honest, the UK is a grown up country uh, with a lot of uh, modern liberal values that uh, influenced us over the years. And now it's nearly the other way around, that there's this kind of chaos uh, in terms of their own sense of identity and interpretation. And the fact that there seems to be a little bit of humility, dare I say it, uh, creeping in. Mm, yeah, I don't know. It's, it was you're a very weird, odd stance. Weird, weird, I'm, no, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious. Of I mean, why would he do it? Why would he do it at a Tory conference? Now, apparently he had already... 
uh, apologised already. Humility ain't the way these guys go. No, I think it's strategic humility. Yeah. And I th- but I do think they realised that they had just trotted out too many uh, radical things. There, there was a lot of egg in their face over that um Bastardized budget, yeah. and they have to uh, they have to figure out they have to find a win, and uh, they have to find a win that will relate to stability and relate to uh, you know keeping uh, keeping the the nervousness and the anxiety that, that I think has been rising within ordinary, particularly English people who would be their core vote, uh, and that that has to be addressed and to try and restore some sort of confidence. I think Truss thankfully seems to be coming to the conclusion that unlike Hitler, she doesn't want to be fighting a war on more than one front at any given time. She has enough to be going on with. So a trade war with the EU, despite whatever bellicose rhetoric they might come out with, is you know, would be hugely damaging to yeah. the British economy. Yeah. And maybe British business is at last being listened to. Like if British business had been listened to in the first place, there wouldn't have been a Brexit. Well, but, indeed. Uh, well, indeed. The, but the, but the, the, going to, back to the conference at the weekend, we actually went really fast from an apology to United Ireland, but um, we'll presumably it'll take a, a bit slower than that. Yeah. The, the, like, again, poll, I, mean, I think there was none of them at the weekend, but poll after poll in the Republic finds a majority of people, yes, totally in favour of United Ireland. Uh, it's mom and apple pie stuff. But then when you ask them, as the, you phrase that question, what are you prepared to do for it, yeah. i.e. pay more tax? Yeah. Not so many people want to do that. Absolutely. As long as yeah. it doesn't cost us anything. Well, there, therein is the rub, and actually something that crossed my mind just after I was saying about there is the symbolism side of it. Then there's another side to it that, again, a lot of, I would say, working class Catholics in the North uh, would be loath to let go the access they have to free medical treatment yeah, and yeah. various other things that they have grown up with over generations and take for granted. Um, so how, how is that going to work in a United Ireland? That's probably a, a bigger sticking point in many respects than anything else. Uh, and when people are in the privacy of the polling booth, uh, will nationalist letter- rhetoric be put to one side if it means that they're going to lose out on, on key things of their, their lifestyle? The other thing, too, being um, you mentioned it there with regards to funding. I'm an optimist on this front in that if there was reunification, I think costing it w- would turn out not to be the problem, some people think, because I think the EU... No more than they did with Germany when it unified, they would have to put together a big package of financial supports. I think the US would also, especially if, if, if it's on somebody like Joe Biden's watch, mm. is going to come out with a big package of financial support and investment. And I think the UK, largely because they would be so happy to get it off the books that they could be talked into continuing their subvention for a decade or more on the basis that, well, Okay, we're we're contributing to a state that's not our responsibility anymore, but it's worth it in the long run to ensure that it's gone completely off our watch, you know? Yeah. And I think the combination of all those potential sources of funding would mean that the funding, you know, uh, wouldn't be the issue. It would be how then it would be funded and it would be how culturally and economically we would manage assimilation. And that's where, you know, down south here, we haven't done any proper thinking about that. It's oh, no, not at all. No, but, but I think the point about, you know, people aren't really prepared, not that many people are prepared to pay more tax, also kind of speaks to there's still a bit of sneaking partitionism, among, <laughs> at least yes. among a cohort of the population, who do we want all that hassle mm. coming down here and, oh, God knows what it'll be like and all, and, you know, prefer things the way they are. And so maybe there's a job work to be done convincing people here. As well as in Northern Ireland. But there's a very practical aspect to this, that uh, if you talk to people in the political classes, uh, which they won't admit in public, but if you have a large body of of the the, um, spectrum of unionist politicians, 
and whatever shades and hues suddenly injected into an All-Ireland Parliament in the Dáil. You're going to, forget about the uh, the nationalist, unionist divide in politics, but uh, all of the other things that we talked about in terms of the, the liberal, cultural mm, uh, yeah. fault lines. And we know where a lot of uh, the, the more extreme unionists stand on that. And it could you know, very much derail certain directions or they could be very obstructive if they wanted to be. And uh, in, in terms of just our, the policies that we take for granted being further developed as we go forward, they could derail, obstruct, and it could be a very frustrating period if we don't didn't manage it properly. And I think those are things that haven't been thought about either. <laughs> it would be an interesting prospect because like, we'd introduce a larger Conservative rump into into an All Ireland Parliament, yeah. who would immediately attract the uh, attention of of diehard Catholics outside, uh, 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 waving their rosary beads well, about, the, for the whatever reason. Some of the greatest supporters of some of the more diehard right wing uh, old school Unionists could be right wing diehard old school Catholics. Yeah, there's not. Yeah. A, you know, there's only a sliver of cigarette paper between them and their ideologies. Yeah. Uh, there's a fair amount of uh, text on this. Uh, there's never been a proper feasibility study on what Northern Ireland con- contributes to the UK. You only hear, uh, only ever hear about how much it costs. Uh, so it has to be taken with a pinch of salt. Uh, what will the Irish sports teams look like about this unity? A few texts about that. Uh, maybe starting with the football team. Colonel says, when we got independence, what's the first thing we did? We got rid of all symbols of Britishness in our towns and cities. Hardly a good selling point to Northern Unionists. Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> but I, actually, that's an interesting point. I don't know, did we? That's somebody mm. said to me once. Outside of Britain, they thought Ireland was was a very uh, sort of. Uh, British or anglicised place or certainly Dublin they say Dublin is still a very uh, in terms of architecture in terms of whatever mm. anglicised uh, compared to even parts of Britain it depends on where you stand in it but uh, I don't like there's a huge amount of symbols if you look for them from post boxes to uh, to crests and things like that on public buildings and, and not, I'm not saying they should be removed they're part of our history and it's part of reminding us that uh, history is a complex thing and loyalties and uh, familial connections are complex. It's not, we have a tendency to think, I was talking about this to a friend of mine actually, uh, we were at a, one of the Dublin history uh, talks yesterday and we went for a, a pint or two afterwards and he was making a point to me about Irish history and loyalties. There is a sense that uh, it was all, you know, uh, fait accompli, the war of independence and whose side you should be on. But there were a lot of Irish people uh, that came from Catholic nationalist backgrounds who, as that period erupted, we kind of looked on uh, aghast and looked and this as an assault on the state. Mm. Uh, and they mightn't have particularly loved British rule, but who were these guys like, you know, th- that were blowing the place asunder? And we kind of need to kind of look back and think about it from that perspective. There was a lot of people that took them a bit of time. It was it to change loyalties and it took a bit of time for the legitimacy of the new state to bed in. Yeah. So, you know, we need to learn the lessons from that and apply them as we we write new chapters and not assume that it was one size fits all in a very straightforward type of transition. So when we look at the Unionist Irish, how they might assimilate or, or plug in to a new identity, we have to be kind of magnanimous. We have to understand the complex notion of loyalties, because some of your one of your listeners made a point, what, you know, the contribution of Northern Ireland and talking in economic terms. If you ask me, if you ask me in shorthand, what's the biggest contribution Northern Ireland has made to the UK? I would say one word. I'd say blood. And I don't mean it from the point of view of the Troubles in a smart arse mm, way. Yeah, what I mean yeah. is, you look at this, the, for, akin to their percentage 
Ulster Unionists, the contribution they've made to Britain's wars, particularly the First World War, the Second World War, I've always said that they deserve to be listened to and their loyalty deserves to be respected because they paid for it in blood. There's no doubt about that. If you look, uh, if you did a, a cursory bit of research, quantitative analysis at the amount of uh, Ulster loyalists. Now, that's not to ignore the Irish nationalists who fought in both world wars. Things, yes, indeed. But if you, you know, percentage-wise, compared to the rest of the UK, you know, the Ulster loyalists, I would say, uh, out-sacrificed most other parts of the UK. And say what you like about it. You don't have to, to like it, but you do have to respect it. Yeah. Just to briefly move on uh, to another subject that uh, somebody pithily sums up in a text. Can you ask Declan if he knew the Russian army was so crap before the war? <laughs> That's a very good question. I knew, I knew that they were a, a blunt instrument, not very uh, good at finesse. And uh, most people who uh, exist in this space knew that they, you know, the, what the Russians lacked in brains, they made up for in brutality to... Mm. to coin a phrase. But nobody, uh, again, it's a topic of conversation from yesterday, nobody that uh, existed in the world of, of military analysis or geopolitics thought that they were as bad. or th- We thought that there was an improvement in their command and control and co- uh, coordination because of the way they managed uh, conflict in Syria and elsewhere, ruthlessly but efficiently. And uh, now it seems it's a, it's a classic trope from totalitarian states. Institutions like the military want to tell their superiors what they want to hear. Uh, and that quest to be appealing efficient leads to a complete diminution in efficiency. And it's, it's even worse than people realise. Nobody even in NATO was expecting. I do a little bit of teaching in uh, one of the NATO schools over in um, in Holland. And uh, oftentimes, it's, it's a while since I've been over there now, but the conversations, you know, uh, would, and you'd be talking to other Europeans there and they'd be talking about different threats. And the Russians were always seen as uh, ca- competent and capable, but not too technically proficient. Uh, but, you know, a, an adversary. Like, any NATO nation in Europe on their own could have taken on the Russians in the field and beaten them. That's the proof of what we're learning. The Ukrainians have only been learning NATO doctrine since 2014, and they were you know, pretty much of a basket case until they started getting that training. They would have had the same doctrine uh, from the Soviet era. And between that and the, um, the actual munitions and uh, hard hardware support that they've been getting, they fought the Russians to a standstill. That's, you look at the size in terms of capacity and how they've out, outfought them. Uh, you look at the coordination. It's not just about giving people weapons. They have to be clever in how they use them. And that offensive, that recent offensive was proof of that. So the Russians are not going to win in the field of battle. Uh, I don't think they're going to go nuclear, but they're using it as a Mm. Uh, they're saber rattling but what I think we are going to see one thing that they're still good at to go back to your listeners point they're not good at conventional warfare uh, they're good at absorbing punishment they're good at inflicting it in, in, in you know the like of bombardments they haven't brought their air force into play because they probably realise that they'll just be showing their complete hand of cards to NATO who are gathering electronic intelligence just outside the borders but they will start to go back to the thing that they've always been good at disrupting and degrading unity uh, through uh, covert activities online, uh, old-fashioned uh, acts of espionage, uh, use of cyber uh, cyber piracy, I would argue, mm-hmm. using privateers, using criminal groups that they tolerate to act as Trojan horses. And their key objective will be one thing and one thing alone, to try and break the unity that exists in Western Europe. If they can do that, then they have a chance of getting some of what their objectives are, or getting to save face. At the moment, they're certainly not going to achieve that through conventional military means. So it's 
we're looking at a, a, some sort of military situation in Ukraine for the medium term? I think so, yeah. yeah. That's one thing I've always said. Now, I, I haven't said that. I also predicted that Ukraine would fall within a fortnight of the invasion. <laughs> yeah. But what I, what I used to preface that with the fact that I did think it was going to be a long, drawn-out conflict, but I thought it would develop into an insurgency-like conflict. So the Ukrainians proved, like, they really did shock the military world in being able to survive intact as a state and to drive the Russians back to where they've driven them to. And the question is, can they drive them out of uh, that area, the, the buffer zone that the Russians are creating? Uh, and the other question is, in the long term, should they? Would it be better to reach some sort of an accommodation where the Russians can be allowed, save a level of face in order to find a way out so that they can pull out across the border like they did in Afghanistan in the 1980s? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a, a cosmetic mechanism. Uh, or will... Putin be dethroned by his own elites and somebody else installed, not, not necessarily taken out and shot, but taken, uh, given his P-45 like Khrushchev was back in the day. And a new face f- uh, formulate a, a, a means of negotiation that everybody can uh, live with and everybody walks away with a win. What they need is some sort of a George Mitchell and uh, Bill Clinton character to come up with some sort of a, an imaginative peace process that culturally allows people to save face. That's going to take time. Yeah. And, the, and the, the Ukrainians are not finished fighting because they have everything to play for. And who can blame them? Yeah, indeed. Uh, thanks a million, Declan, for coming in to us. Uh, fascinating as ever, Declan Power there. Uh, let's uh, find out what's in the cash machine. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.